Thanks, Judy. Almost. Wow. Uh, I've been hanging out with Jim Howard around campfires for about 15 years, and so this is my chance to say anything I want. And while well, he's out of town, um, it is a it is a treat to be with you, folks. Um, I've probably seen some of your faces uh, at the at the amphitheater, uh, where I've been able to speak a couple of times. Um, but, you know, that's a sea of a thousand faces with the sun in my eyes, so it doesn't always work quite as well. I do want to recognize also uh, our, all of our mothers. Uh, I know Mother's Day can be both a, a great, really joyful day and sometimes a painful day for many, but really this is an occasion for us all uh, to honor and remember our own mothers, whether they're with us or not. Um, whether they were good moms or bad moms, they were our moms. And they were the moms who paid a, a dear price to give birth to each one of us and cared for us and nurtured us. And so we want to give thanks to God for each of our mothers today. If you've got a copy of the Scriptures handy, let me ask you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 9. We're going to read uh, a somewhat lengthy passage. I'm going to read the first 19 verses of Acts chapter 9. So if you find that in your, your hard copy or your phone, uh, follow along while we read together the Word of God. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Uh, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, 
who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized and after taking some food he regained his strength. And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Um, I imagine that several of you are familiar with a popular personality inventory called the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Many know, know of that? Yeah, it's fairly well known. Uh, one, of the, one of the metrics on the Myers-Briggs, um, the, the final one of the four, uh, measures how comfortable we are with, um, um, with openness and the unplanned. And it, you, either fall, you fall into one of two categories. You're either a P or a J. Now, I don't, I'm not real conversant on what those letters stand for, but I know that those who are in the P category are very open to serendipity and the unexpected, and they love not to plan. And those who are in the J category love spreadsheets and schedules, and they love to know what's going to happen. They love predictability and control. Now, um, I happen to be in that latter category, Um, the J. Uh, And so you combine that, uh, at least in my case, and maybe in some view, with being a firstborn, and you get a pretty toxic combination uh, sometimes people would call that uh, control issues or, you know, we love predictability. We love to have uh, a, a sense of management over our environment and our future. Um, and we do not love disruption. Uh, but whether you're a, a P or a J on the Myers-Briggs, uh, in, in one sense, for, probably few of us love disruption. Uh, for deeper reasons, um, but but sometimes even it's um, you know it's even silly. My, think think about some of the traditions that you might have in your family. Uh, our own family, our our kids are grown and gone now, thank the Lord. Um, uh, but they but they still come back for Christmas, and uh, and even after they were grown and gone. Uh, a couple of years ago, we remodeled part of our house and had new uh, new flooring put in, and and it we, we started it in the fall, but the you know as projects do, they the, the project got extended. It took longer than expected, and it was going into the Christmas holidays, and so we st- our upstairs floors were still torn up. So I had the audacity to suggest uh, that when we put up the Christmas tree that year, we just put the tree up in the basement and celebrate Christmas in the basement, which is fully finished and nice enough. Um, but you, you would think I had, you know, I, I, I had become a communist or something with, um, because the text messages that were flying around between my adult children, oh, dad's at it again. He is determined to ruin Christmas. Yeah. Nobody likes disruption. Um, but, but again, we, we really do not like to be disrupted when our, our own sense of, of safety depends on a sense of predictability. We really don't like disruption when we, are, when we are personally and deeply invested in something we know or something we believe or, uh, or in how things work. And we really do not like disruption when we have become accustomed to having the resources to solve problems. 
disruption is very disrupting. Um, and, and yet, many of us would know that some of our most significant growth comes as a result of various kinds of disruptions. Some of you would know this. There's a, there's a, there's a business failure that ends up launching a brand new fresh idea. Or, or, or perhaps a, a loss, a, a, a tragedy in our lives that forces us to redefine ourselves in our direction. Or, or various kinds of problems we face that, that force us to, uh, to come up with creativity that we have never had before. As much as we may dislike disruption in all, or all kinds of arenas in our lives, we particularly do not like that in the arena of our faith and our relationship with God. Uh, but without disruption, some really dangerous things begin to happen in our lives. Without disruption in our lives, the gospel becomes very safe and domesticated. We begin to talk about the gospel rather than let the gospel get hold of us. The gospel becomes just another means of kind of comfortable self-improvement and advancement in life. We, we tend to forget what happens when Jesus invaded our lives. and We turn into just kind of decent, respectable, successful people who've lost the capacity to really hear God in life-giving ways without disruption. Um, that's where the text that we read this morning comes in really handy for us. Because it shows us, among other things, that we serve a God who disrupts us in order to redeem us. Now, in one, in one sense, we've got a really important chronicle here, a really important history of the, the launching of the gospel beyond the Jewish world into the Gentile world. Very important uh, narrative of how the gospel expanded. But this is not just about what happened to this man named Saul, whom we later know as Paul, and this man named Ananias, whom we know hardly anything about. It's not just about what happened to them, because what happened to them that we just read is really a sort of model or a, maybe a microcosm of how God tends to work in all of our lives. But here we've got Saul. Let's about just a moment to appreciate what really happened to him. Saul, who was the poster child of Jewish, embodied every Jewish value. He was the, uh, the protector of the Jewish traditions. He was the epitome of control, of competence, of commitment, he had been mentored by the, the, uh, the well-known Rabbi Gamaliel. And interestingly, uh, as best we can gauge his age, he was probably about the same age as Jesus, what we would consider a young adult. He was passionate. He was credentialed. He was convinced, and he was committed. And he was pursuing Christians with a fury. Because they, in his mind, were undermining everything holy and right that God cared about. In his mind. Just after Pentecost, when a lot of the believers had, uh, had started to scatter, 
partly as a result of what Saul was doing, because he, as many of you would know, he had stood by uh, helping and affirming those who had stoned one of the early Christians, Stephen, to death. And as part of his, uh, his agenda, he had gotten news that there was a growing, strong Christian outpost in the city of Damascus. Damascus was also host to a very strong Jewish community. And when Saul got this news that, that these Christians had taken root and were growing in Damascus, he saw the thriving Jewish community in Damascus being undermined, and this had to be stopped. And Paul, Saul set out. Set out with official authorization from the chief priests to put an end to this in Damascus. Now, if you've looked at a map of the Middle East, um, you'll know that Damascus, the ancient city of Damascus, was uh, to the kind of the north-northwest a little bit of Jerusalem. And it was, by our measurements, 130 miles. Now, Saul set out, as best we know, on foot with a few companions. And that is the equivalent of walking from Dillon to Fort Collins by way of I-70 and I-25. Committed. Look, the equivalent of Dillon to Fort Collins to put an end to this. That's going to take a while. But he is relentless. Uh, but the God whom Saul was so convinced he knew had a few surprises in store for Saul. We see even kind of a play on words in the text because uh, in verse 2, uh, Luke, the, uh, the writer of the book of Acts, he records that Saul was on his way to Damascus to persecute followers of the way, which was an early, um, uh, an early figure of speech for followers of Jesus. They call themselves the way. Uh, in verse 17, he uses the exact same Greek word uh, for the road to Damascus. So Saul is on his way to Damascus to persecute followers of the way, and then he himself ends up on the way. Uh, now, what, what do we see here that is, is similar to what happens when God enters our lives disruptively? What was so disruptive for Saul? Well, let me point out a couple of things. One, uh, Saul assumed that he had insight, that he saw into God's ways. He really knew what God valued and what God cared about and what God wanted for people. And yet what we see in, when God disrupted his life was uh, he had to experience blindness so that he could see what he could not see. And it's, it's curious that the, the theme of blindness and sight later on become recurring themes for Saul after his name is changed to Paul. And in, his, in various letters, he, in Romans chapter 2, he refers to those who are convinced that they are a guide for the blind and a light for those in the dark. 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of Christ. Ephesians 1, he, he prays for those Ephesian Christians that the eyes of their heart 
would be enlightened. You see, his early experience on the road to Damascus became a theme that he revisited over and over. It's all about seeing or not seeing. And he thought he saw and God had to blind him so that he could then really see. Saul also assumed that he was the leader and he was the spiritual guide. Um, And yet, interestingly, Saul had to be helpless and had to be led by his own companions. And again, Saul's experience is is sort of a, a, a distilled and a concentrated version of ours. Because whether each of us have uh, been disrupted when we came to Jesus initially or find ourselves disrupted along the way, what every one of us experiences is that God has to disrupt our lives in order that we can really see who He is. Um, otherwise, what do we do? Well, e- even if we've been following Jesus Christ for some time, we all, every one of us, bring along with us expectations, demands, preconceptions about God and God's role in our lives. We superimpose these expectations onto God, and as often as not, we're defining the rules for God. And we realize that God isn't maybe the God we thought we were signing up for. Has anybody else other than me had that happen, where you're following God, but God just doesn't behave God doesn't play by the rules that so clearly are the right rules. God doesn't do what God is supposed to do in my life. God lets us down. God disappoints us. God takes wrong turns in the road. And God has to disrupt us. God has to, in a sense, blind us. God has to make us helpless so that God can show us who He really is. So that God can show us that while He does make a difference in our lives, that God's fundamental role is not just making us into nicer people. God's fundamental role is not just tuning up our lives. That God's fundamental concern is not just making our lives work better. All of that may happen in various ways along the way. But it is very disruptive to us when we find out that's not God's job. That is deeply disruptive. And that, again, that happens to us whether we've come to Christ in a jarring way or whether along the way those preconceptions and those expectations and those demands get get painfully tweaked and disrupted. Um, Without that disruption... As I mentioned, the the gospel becomes very tame and we lose sight of what it is that we're really dealing with, what it is that we really have when we have Jesus Christ. Um, Periodically, my wife and I will enjoy watching uh, on PBS uh, Antiques Roadshow. Anybody else enjoy that? Uh, a few months ago, no, actually, it was about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, we were watching the Antiques Roadshow, and they were in um, Southern California, uh, in the in the Los Angeles area, and they, uh, you know, the you know the drill. Uh, they had a, a woman there who had a sort of plaid flannel jacket, 
And the appraiser uh, asked her where she got this jacket, and she said, well, I got this jacket at a, an estate sale, and it happened to be uh, an estate sale for Carol O'Connor, who, if you're you know, above a certain age, you'll remember who he was, you know, played Archie Bunker on All in the Family in the early 70s. Uh, well, when Carol O'Connor passed away, uh, his, uh, his widow uh, held an estate sale and just opened the house up, and this woman uh, walked through the house and found a jacket in a closet, this plaid flannel jacket. Well, the appraiser on uh, Antiques Roadshow pulled up a picture from the actual TV series, All in the Family, and there was that plaid flannel jacket. It was Carol O'Connor's personal property that he wore in the TV show. And so the appraiser asked this woman, how much did you pay for this jacket? And she said, ah, I think $45. And I just wear it every morning when I go walk my dog. He says, don't wear this in the morning when you walk your dog. You need to insure this for about $10,000. She had no idea what she had. And that same kind of thing can happen to us with the gospel, with our faith in Jesus Christ, unless along the way God does some version of what he did with Saul and disrupts us. Shows us that Ah, maybe we don't see what we thought we saw. Maybe we don't know what we thought we knew. Maybe the rules that we have superimposed onto God are our rules, not God's rules. Maybe we've set up hoops that God has to jump through, and God just doesn't perform like the, like the circus monkey. Maybe God's not my personal genie. That's very disruptive, isn't it? But do we continue to be open to that? This, this account of Saul and how his, his entire life was turned around, turned upside down by his disruptive encounter with the risen Jesus Christ, this account holds a mirror up in front of us and, and asks us, are we open to God disrupting our lives so that we can indeed know God more truly? Or have we, have we just kind of blurred and blended our Christian commitment with other kinds of loyalties, other kinds of values, other kinds of commitments, pasted Christian language on all of those so that now our, our, our other loyalties are indiscriminate from our loyalty to Jesus. That sets us up for disruption. But that disruption is so that we can actually know the living, life-giving Jesus Christ. There's, there's one other feature of disruption in this text, it, it sort of gets overshadowed often by what happened with Saul, but it's just about as significant. And that's the second half of this account where God speaks to this, this innocuous figure named Ananias. Now, fortunately, this is not the Ananias who got killed in Acts chapter 5. This is a different Ananias. And we don't know anything about this man. We know his Hebrew name was Hananiah. Um, but, but he never again in, appears in Scripture. He's just a guy. Happens to be another one of many believers in the city of Damascus. Just another guy. And the Lord comes to him and calls him by name. Uh, as, as we can understand, Ananias was quite fearful 
Because Saul's reputation preceded him. He knew who Saul was. He knew why Saul was coming. And, and put yourself in Ananias' place. And, and if you hear the voice of the Lord who tells you to go and put your life on the line like this, you're going to think, what? You're going to be looking over your shoulder thinking, are you, are you, are you talking to the guy behind me here? What? Me? This is dangerous stuff. But this innocuous figure, Ananias, had to trust God in a profoundly radical way. And what that shows us is that the God who redeems us disruptively also disrupts us by giving us a calling and a purpose. God has stuff for us to do that will stretch us to our core. Uh, it's a good thing that Ananias was faithful because the ripple effects of what Ananias did have impacted every single one of us here. What Ananias did in faithfully, courageously, even if fearfully, responding to God's call to go and, and minister to Saul, launched Saul launch the gospel into the broader Gentile world, and every one of us who sit here as a follower of Jesus benefit from that one act of faith, that one act of service. Because Saul was set on a course he could never have imagined. When God gives us something to do, it does not always fall within the line of our known competencies and passions and interests and However you scored on the spiritual gifts inventory, if you've ever taken one of those. When God gives us something to do, sometimes it disrupts us at our core. Sometimes it seems very out of bounds with what we know about ourselves. Sometimes it scares us to, dis to, to death and disrupts our comfort and reroutes our entire path. But just as with Ananias, God promises to go with us. He's with us. He takes us where we need to go, even if it's beyond the edge of our competencies. We see this all through Scripture, don't we? Moses was called by God to confront Pharaoh, and he's looking behind him and saying, Who? who? God's answer, I'll be with you. Um, have you ever had one of those, you got to be kidding me, God, moments? It, it, does that ever happen to anybody? Where, where God places in front of you a need that that you can fill somebody's life whom you need to put your hand on, someone broken and hurting and needy who needs a word of encouragement and mercy from you, and you're saying, you got to be kidding me, God. When God disrupts us, He disrupts us to redeem us. And when God redeems us, He, he often disrupts us by giving us a calling and a purpose. And with that disruptive call and purpose, he gives us himself. He comes along with us. Uh, God regularly disrupts our lives, and what does that tell us? Well, it tells us a couple of things every one of us need to take home with us. This disruptive God we serve tells us that the way that the early Christians call themselves Following Jesus Christ is not just one more item on a menu of spiritual options. 
No, it's not just another moral system to make life work better, because as often as not, it doesn't. What it tells us is that this is about a God who sees us before we see God. And a God who defines us, we don't define Him. It tells us that on this way, we serve a God who takes us seriously enough, loves us deeply enough to go straight to the heart of who we are and mess with us at that level and redeem us at that level. Go straight to the core of our values. Go straight to the core of our prejudices. Straight to the core of our expectations. Straight to the core of what gives us comfort. Straight to the core of of what we hide behind. Straight to the core of what we look to to protect us. God goes straight to the core of all that and messes with us there to redeem us. That's what this account tells us, that we serve a God who's not just there to be our genie, but to be our God who will redeem us. in every conceivable way. This tells us about a God who comes to us personally, not just sits in the heavens and looks at us from a distance, but shows up in residence as one of us in Jesus Christ. Takes our own sin, the the, the judgment for our sin on Himself. Takes us seriously enough to enter the mud with us, not stay safe and clean away from it takes us seriously enough to to come and redeem what we think is the very worst that could ever happen. That's the God who disrupts us. That's the God who is portrayed for us here in this text. And what that leaves us with is a question. Leaves us with the question whether we really serve our comfortable notions of God, our comfortable, controlled expectations of God, our familiar familiar rules for God's behavior, or do we let God be God on God's terms? Do we trust God to be faithful when God is not predictable and controllable? Big difference. Do we trust God to be faithful and good and redeeming when God is not at all predictable? That's the God who's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. That's the God who's revealed to us here in this account with Saul and Ananias. It's a disruptive God, but a God who disrupts us not just to God who disrupts us not to be mean to us, but a God who disrupts us in order that we can really see who he is. A God who disrupts us enough that he can really transform us. Really do something meaningful in our lives. God may be disrupting you right now. God may be disrupting you very soon. You might be right on the heels of something very disruptive. But but here's what Saul and Ananias' experience will tell every one of us. This God who disrupts or allows such disruption is the only God worth trusting and so it falls to us to wait and see what he's going to do with that because whatever it is painful costly unexpected tearful joyful and celebrative it 
will be good. Let's pray together. Father, good and gracious God, uh, we, we sometimes approach you timidly and fearfully, um, uncertain of, of how you're going to behave in our lives. But we receive this account as your word to us that not only with Saul the, and Ananias, but with every one of us, we can trust you to, to do the work, sometimes the hard work, the painful work, the unexpected work in our lives that we so deeply need. We want to trust you with that. And we want to, uh, we want to thank you for taking us seriously enough, for loving us enough to get straight to the heart of who we are and what we need. So we praise you for that, Lord, and we, we look forward to your grace that always accompanies us, always undergirds us, always replenishes us, um, so that even the disruptions are not the, the last word. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your love and your favor that come to us through Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.